Good morning, church family. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will pick up here in the uh, latter part of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in a moment, starting in verse 18, read down through the end of the chapter. As you find your place and our younger children uh, line up, that line is getting longer and longer. It's eventually going to line up all the way down here, I'm afraid. Um, as, as we get ourselves settled, uh, let me tell you something that's coming at the end of the month. My favorite weekend of the year is when our church sets aside a weekend to celebrate uh, what God is doing through our Praise and Go partnerships and to recommit ourselves over the next 12 months to praying, sending, and going together with the gospel of Jesus to the nations. If you're new with us, we categorize the work that we do away from this place as our Praise and Go missions, Praise and Go partnerships. We currently have four of these along the Appalachian Trail, uh, the Eastern Shore of Virginia, uh, Western Philadelphia, and uh, a partnership in Rwanda in East Africa. And every year at the end of September, uh, we get to hear about what God, we do this throughout the year, hear what God is doing through our partnerships, but we have a special weekend where that's what we do. We focus on those things. And then together, we challenge one another to uh, pray and send and go together on that Sunday. So on that Friday night, on September the 29th, we will host our Pray, Send, Go dinner. There are tickets today that are on sale in the lobby. $5 for dinner just helps cover some of the cost of uh, the food. doesn't cover all the cost of the food, just helps some of it. And it allows us to know how many people are going to come. And so you could buy a ticket to the Pray, Send, Go dinner, which will be on September the 29th. Uh, we're going to hear from different people in our church who uh, have gone on mission trips this last year. Uh, Pastor Jay, our pastor for adult discipleship and outreach, is going to give a unique challenge that night to our church. Uh, and so we would love to have you join us uh, for dinner that evening. Uh, there is childcare up through kindergarten, and so you could sign your children up for that. And then on that Sunday, on October the 1st, uh, we are going to stay in our series in 1 Corinthians, but it is going to be a sermon about the mission, and I will call our church to recommit ourselves to praying, sending, and going over the next 12 months. So we look forward to that weekend together. I invite you now to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 18 um, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, reading down through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the gathered body of believers here at Nansman River Baptist Church, for this local church, the expression of your family on this corner. Father, we recognize that you alone, through the gospel of Jesus, which is the power of God unto salvation, have brought us together as a family. For once we were far off. We were, a- we were aliens and strangers. And you have united us around one common cause, the gospel. You have brought us into your family and made us a family. Would you help us to remember your gospel this morning? Would you remind us of its truth and its power? Would you show us just how good you are in offering to us salvation found in Jesus to all who believe? Would we not boast in ourselves, in what we can do, in who we are, in how wise or powerful or noble we may think that we are. But we, would we recognize our lowly state and how you have exalted us in Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Church family, as we continue here in this series in 1 Corinthians, the sermon this morning is entitled, The Gospel Matters. Last week, we really introduced the, uh, in the second sermon in this series, introduced the, Paul's main idea through the first four chapters of this letter to a local church. And his primary concern, at least his primary concern here in the first part of this letter, the first third of it, is their unity. That they had become disunified, that a report had come back to Paul that they were Uh, becoming tribal. Uh, They were allowing themselves to divide based off of whose preaching they preferred and possibly even who baptized them upon their conversion. And this was causing dissension and strife. And and Paul reminds them that, that it should not be so, that this kind of division should not be found within the people of God because the the people that they are claiming to follow, those whom they are taking sides with, Apollos and and Paul himself and, and Peter, are really nothing that everyone should be on team Jesus because it is the gospel of Jesus that the apostles were preaching to the church 
that the leaders in the church were, were calling people to believe in, and it is the gospel of Jesus, not the message of an apostle or a disciple or an elder or a specific preacher that people should rally around. And, and it's, we have to understand what we're reading now is in that vein. It's in the context of unity. Every sermon over the next several weeks, basically all the way from now till Thanksgiving, are, are, are going to be centered around this idea that we must be a unified church because of the gospel. And what we're going to consider today truly is the, the gospel proper. It's that the gospel is what matters. Now, maybe you're new with us. Somebody invited you. Somebody brought you, brought, you, know, brought you with them this morning, or you just decided to come and you say, you've used a word preacher about half a dozen times that I'm already confused with, and it's the word gospel. Well, if you'll, if you'll pay attention to the sermon today, you're going to clearly hear and I believe be able to understand what the gospel is. In short, the gospel is the good news of Jesus, that God, although he did not need to, sent his one and only son to live a perfect life to die a sinner's death, was raised from the dead and now ascended to the right hand of the Father so that you could be saved. This is the gospel. This is the message of our church that unifies us. It is how we find unity in diversity because the gospel matters. The main idea of our sermon today is that the gospel eclipses all human divisions, wisdom, and power. Paul says you have created disunity in your church and Corinth, and I'm calling you to be a unified people, and I'm calling you to be a unified people around one central message, Christ and him crucified. And Nansman River, I reminded us at the end of the sermon last week that this is how we, a unified church, remain unified, and that is through keeping our eyes focused on the central message, the gospel, Christ, and in them crucified. But what we will see today is that the gospel is not one message of many that may unify us. The gospel is the only message that it can unify us because it is the message that eclipses all others. So let's begin. The gospel divides in a way that nothing else can. And you say, wait, I thought this was about unity. And you're beginning with division, with disunity. Well, we need to understand that the message of the gospel unifies, but in unifying the church, it actually divides. That the message of the gospel is, in one sense, unifying, but in a whole other sense, it is disunifying, it is divisive. Now, we live in a divisive age. That is not a secret to anyone that is at least paying attention in this room today. I think, I believe that this is actually by design. I don't think it's new. I think division is a long used and actually often very profitable endeavor by those who want people to be distracted, 
to keep their eyes off the prize, to keep themselves from recognizing what's going on, division is a distraction. And think just how divided our world is. We're divided amongst rich and poor, the haves and the have-nots. We're divided against black and white and brown, red and blue, rural and city, educated and uneducated. The list goes on. All you have to do is turn the news on to find out how divided we are and if you really pay attention, how much they really want us to stay divided. Can I tell you that we are divided and not just culturally divided but there is something that divides us far more than any of these other distinctions can there is nothing and I mean absolutely nothing that divides quite like the gospel of Jesus Christ we saw last week that unnecessary division within the church is a terrible thing, and unity within the church matters. So in one sense, the gospel is unifying, but the gospel itself causes the greatest division in the world. Listen to what Paul says in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul begins his argument about the gospel and the centrality of the gospel and why the gospel matters with this. There are two distinct groups of people in this world. And you're not in that group based off of the language you speak or the amount of material possessions you have or the color of your skin or where you were born. You are in one of these two groups based off of what you do with the gospel of Jesus and how the gospel of Jesus has or has not changed your life. There are those who are, Paul says, perishing and those whom Paul says are being saved. So both of these are, are present tense active nouns that people are either already perishing. They're, they're, they're not eternally separated from God in hell yet, but they are still, in Paul's view and mind, perishing, present tense, because of their rejection of the gospel, or they are continually being saved. And, and why? What is it that puts people in one of these groups or another? He says it is the word of the cross. Now, when Paul says the word of the cross, which we're actually going to explain further in a later sermon because he uses this uh, same words later in, in the, he actually uses it three times in uh, this New Testament epistle. But when we read word of the cross this morning, we need to read the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's folly. It's foolishness is another way of, of translating that word. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who, who, who are dead in their trespasses and sin and have not been made alive to Christ. They've not had the scales fall off their eyes and their heart of stone turn to a heart of flesh. They hear the gospel and believe it is foolishness. 
But to those who are in Christ, those who have believed, those who, who Paul says in verse 18, are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. There is no greater division in all of the world than those who have believed the gospel unto salvation from those who have rejected it and are therefore perishing. Hear me clearly, you are in one of these two groups this morning. There is no in-between moment. You can't straddle these two worlds. You can't think the gospel is good news and have believed it to salvation and still be perishing. It is either foolishness to you or it is the greatest news you have ever heard and you have believed it with your whole heart. You are one of those two things. The gospel overcomes, overshadows all divisions, all earthly divisions. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, for the way that Paul was raised, Paul was raised an ethnic Israelite, a committed Hebrew for, for, for Paul's upbringing, there, there was no greater earthly distinction between Jew and Greek. We would also say Jew and Gentile. That they, the Jewish people viewed themselves as completely separate from everyone else on the planet. Now, though, Paul views it differently. The division is no longer ethnic. The division is now spiritual because the power of God can save both Jew and Greek. It can save black and white. It can save rich and poor. And those divisions pale in comparison to the one that is caused by the gospel. So when we believe the gospel of Jesus... We must, from the outset, here's what we must understand. We must understand that we are believing something that is going to make us different than the world. It's going to cause division. It's going to separate us from those who are perishing. And it's not just because we have believed something. It's because we are actually living something. Our lives in the gospel become divisive. Consider how, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. There he writes, starting in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, get this, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Everything else in life becomes second to the gospel and the gospel's work in your life when you believe it. And it's not only our belief in that gospel that ultimately divides us from those who are perishing, it is our obedience to it. As we share, as Paul writes there in Philippians 3, as we share in the suffering of Christ, as we join in his resurrection, our lives become marked, markedly different. There is a noticeable difference in the life of those who are following Christ 
and those who are not. We become committed to a cause that is foreign and folly and foolishness to those who do not believe it. Now, just because the gospel divides does not mean that we are divisive people. And, and this is why I wanted to take all of, all of this latter part of 1 Corinthians 1 together. So I want you to keep listening to me because when we get to the end, I'm going to make this appeal. People that have been divided by the gospel don't need to be divisive in the way that we treat one another because it's not ultimately about us anyway. But I want to just preface that to you. That some people take the, the divisiveness of the gospel kind of as a personal mission. And they want to look at people who have rejected the gospel and treat them badly because of their rejection of it. But when we recognize that it is God who is working within us and not our own work that has caused us to be saved, our perception and our perspective changes. But we must understand that the gospel is the most divisive message to ever be proclaimed on the planet. Number two, the gospel overcomes the wisdom and power of the world. From one empire to the next throughout human history over the course of millennia, history is full of examples of overconfident cultures and worldly philosophies that have thought they had it all figured out. And yet their empires and philosophies lay in the dustbin of history. That the people that believed these things, like the ones who believe things contrary to the gospel today, will eventually realize that their empires were powerless and their philosophies were foolishness. Because in the gospel alone do we see the wisdom and power of God which overcomes all worldly wisdom and power. Look at verses 19 through 21. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. We find that in Isaiah chapter 29. So Paul's looking back on the Old Testament saying God told us this was going to happen. He, he told us this would happen. And it happened in Jesus. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Here's Paul's next argument. The gospel divides between those who consider it foolishness and are perishing and those who have understand that it is the wisdom of God and been saved. And now he's making the argument that it was in God's wisdom to not save the world through worldly wisdom. It, it was God's plan all along. And that's just why he appeals back to something that had been written in the Old Testament centuries before, that God would destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, and the discernment of the discerning he would thwart. Because this was always God's plan. God could have chosen to save the world in any way he desired or in no way at all because he is God. He could have chosen to save the world through the wisdom of the world. 
He could have chosen to save the world through the wealthy and the elite and the noble of the world. Any of those things were possible, and yet that in God in his wisdom chose not to save the world in that way, but to save the world in a, and to save his people in a way that was completely contrary to the wisdom and power of the world. And so what we preach, then Paul says, is perceived as folly or again as foolishness, yet it alone is what God uses to save souls. This is such a comforting fact for me. For for some Christians, this really becomes a sticking point in their minds. They just don't, they really, I think it comes from a good place. They really just want everybody to believe the gospel. And look, God wants everybody to believe the gospel. God is patient with people, right? And so that, that revealed will of God to us is that we can walk in that and preach the gospel to all people, desiring that all men might be saved. Like this, we, we can walk in that. But some of us get so wrapped up in knowing the truth of the gospel that, that we we wonder why nobody, why other people don't believe it to the point where we, we kind of flip-flop this, this idea that Paul is, Paul is presenting. We recognize that the world's way is ultimately foolish. And this is what's comforting to me, is recognizing that the world is going to think that the message I am preaching today and that which we believed is foolish. It's, it's, it's what they're going to think. Not all of them. Some of them are going to be saved. But many of them, dare we say most of them, are going to reject it as folly and foolishness. And yet it is this message alone that God uses to save people. And we need to understand this was God's plan. That God's plan was to take what the world would think is foolishness and redeem a people for himself through that message. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, just after Matthew chapter 11, in the previous verses, Jesus has condemned some of the cities that he spent most of the time in, in the area of, of Israel known as Galilee. He did most of his work in Galilee. And some of those places, he did incredible miracles, and the people still rejected the gospel. They rejected Jesus. And so in the previous verses to this, he, he condemns those places. He actually says, if I had done in Sodom, the Old Testament pagan city that God destroyed, if I had done in Sodom what I did in your city, Sodom would repent it and still been around today, but yet you're still demanding more and more and not believing. And so he says this to the father, Jesus prays in Matthew 11, says this, at this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, father, for such was your gracious will. Hear me today, saint, if you have believed the gospel unto salvation, then you are the little children that Jesus is praying to the Father for. And we should be grateful for this. Don't don't let your flesh reject Jesus calling you a little child. 
Don't let, don't let your flesh reject Jesus saying that you were not the wise and the understanding in the world, but that you were like a little child. And as I've preached through the gospels and you know, previous sermons here, and we've run across these kind of passages, I've always pointed this out. It, children in Jesus's day were not like children in our day. Children in our day are set up on a mantle and almost worshiped in the home. We treat children as if they are idols. That was not the way they were treated in the first century. In Jesus' day, children were very much seen and not heard. They, they, They didn't really participate in a whole lot of society until they had grown past childhood. They were in some ways kind of seen as a nuisance. It wasn't the right way for them to be viewed. Children aren't a nuisance. They are a blessing, but they are not an idol, right? There's a middle ground that we should take here. And so when we hear little children, sometimes we have our view and understanding of what a child is and not a first century Israelite view of what a child is. A first century Israelite child was viewed as one that that had no wisdom and no understanding at all. And yet Jesus prays to the father and says, you have revealed this to them like little children. Now, again, I appeal to you, friend, don't let, don't let your, fa- your, your flesh push against that and be like, ah, God shouldn't look at me like that. No, we should be grateful that God looks at us like that. Because without coming to him like a little child, we have no hope. If we bring our wisdom and understanding to the table and try to negotiate our salvation with God, it gets rejected because it's not about our wisdom and understanding. It is about our humility before him, recognizing that we could never save ourselves, but the gospel of Jesus overcomes that wisdom and power and becomes wisdom and power for us. Look with me in verses 22 through 25. Paul continues, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The world, here, you may want to write this down. you like taking notes. The world is unimpressed by the gospel. The world, people out there who are rejecting Christ, who are perishing, are unimpressed by what we're doing in here this morning. They're unimpressed by what we believe. They're unimpressed by our ability to gather and to be united around this common cause and mission and message. They are unimpressed by the gospel of Jesus. And they will ultimately fall primarily into one of two categories. Those who either demand signs like the Jewish people did, or they're going to continue to seek after worldly wisdom like the Greeks did. Why does, why does Paul make these two appeals? Not, not because only Jews demand signs and only Greeks seek wisdom, but these were common markers of those cultures. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, some Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus. They have this interaction. These are religious leaders. If you don't know who those people are, religious leaders in Jesus' day, they come to him in Matthew 16 to test him. And they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. So exactly what Paul says Jews seek, that's what the Jews came to seek of Jesus. And he answered them in Matthew 16, when, in heaven, when it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Even the wisest amongst the Jews demanded additional signs with the Messiah, the Son of God, staring them right in their eyes. And that's what some people in our world still today is going to want. If I'm going to believe in Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then God's going to have to show me a sign. Listen, people that demand signs are always going to demand more signs. With Jesus standing in their midst, that's exactly what they did. But what about the Greeks seeking wisdom? About a day or two's walk from Corinth was a city most of us have heard of called Athens. And Paul has this experience there in Acts chapter 17. Says Luke writes for us there that some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the ark. Aeropagus and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing new things. This is an example of what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians where, where what the, the Jews are looking for a sign and the Greeks are always just seeking new wisdom because Greek culture prized itself on the pursuit of wisdom. Philosophers traveled, or some of them that we still hear about and study today, traveled about in that culture teaching new things. And, and they, they prized that which was new. And people today, maybe they don't demand a sign, but what they're just never going to be fully convinced. Look, you're not ever going to argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. You're not ever going to be eloquent enough. I'm not ever going to be able to be eloquent enough here in this pulpit that the Lord has afforded me to, to convince someone to believe in Jesus. Because those who are perishing are either going to say, give me another sign, or they're going to say, show me more and more wisdom. Because ultimately, the gospel of Jesus is folly to them. But what do we preach? They demand signs and wisdom. What do we preach? Verse 23 says, we preach Christ crucified. Holy cow. It's that simple. What do we preach, church? We preach Christ crucified. We're going to talk more about this next week. We're going to go more into depth on just how simple the message of Christ crucified is. But here's what he says about the message of Christ crucified. That it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's the Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Because of their disposition for signs or for worldly wisdoms, the message of the cross is ultimately a stumbling block for those who are looking for signs and wisdom. But when the Lord begins to work in someone's life, as he writes in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, right? That's, that's the word, that's the, the, the Holy Spirit working in someone's life, drawing them to salvation. When the Lord begins to work in someone's life, the gospel becomes power and wisdom. 
where they used to demand signs and, and more and more information, now they recognize the simple message of Jesus Christ crucified in their place is all they need to believe to be saved because God has outsmarted and overpowered everything else. This is why we come to him as little children because the message of the cross of Christ, the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that Christ died in our place and was resurrected to life so that we may live that message while it is weakness and foolishness to those who are perishing when God begins to move in someone's life. They begin to see it completely different. And that which was once foolishness and weakness now becomes power and wisdom, and this has always been God's way of saving those whom he would save. Number three, the gospel eliminates boasting for all who are in Christ. I've already alluded to this. Remember, the gospel divides, but we don't have to be divisive. The gospel is not our wisdom and power. It is God's wisdom and power, and so because of this, we don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in what we have figured out. We don't boast in what we have done we boast in Christ and Christ alone. Pick up in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. He's about to insult them. We need to read this that way, by the way. Listen, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You didn't have good ACT scores, Paul says. You, you, you're not, you know, when I look at you, Corinth, as a whole, you're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. You weren't wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Hold on. You're not very important in your culture. You don't have a lot of pull and a lot of sway. Nobody would vote for you. Not many were of noble birth. I'd never heard of you people before I got there, Paul says. And, you know, y'all don't have the big house on the hill. You're not coming from some well-to-do, well-off family. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord I already told you that the world is unimpressed by the gospel. The world is also unimpressed by those who have believed the gospel. And this is God's plan too. Now this doesn't mean, let me just start out from the outset what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God doesn't save rich people. It doesn't mean that God doesn't save powerful people. It doesn't mean that God doesn't save famous people. It doesn't mean that God doesn't save the kind of people that Paul is saying the church at Corinth was not. But most of them were not these things. It's actually the word that he used, right? Many of you. He's saying the majority of you are really, from a worldly standpoint, nothing special. Can I say something, church? I'm really glad that I have pastored this church now for over eight years because I have grown, I have grown just in a deep love for you, not just a love for this church, but I love for you. I love you. 
And so because I love you, I can say this. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. <laughs> not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. God took this riffraff right here and made us alive in the gospel of Jesus. And yes, there are some people in here who are wealthy. And there are some people in here who are equivalent to being of noble birth. And there are some people in here who are incredibly wise from a worldly standard. Most of us are relatively average. Maybe some of us are below average. And yet, and yet, God chose to take that which is weak to display his strength. So I ask you today, Christian, are you foolish in the world's eyes? Are you weak compared to those who would consider themselves strong? Are you lowly and despised? Well, so were many in the church at Corinth. And it is them that God chose to start his church in that city. Why? So that nobody could look at what was happening and say, oh, that's just because they're all wealthy. That's just because they're all noble. That's just because they have all this influence and power. No, God took that riffraff and made them into something just as God has taken us and made us into something. Why? So that no one can boast in anything but Jesus. He writes to the church, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no, no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. The gospel eliminates boasting, even boasting in our good works. In a few weeks, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, we're going to gather together and celebrate what God is doing through our mission partnerships. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to boast in what we have done and, and how we in, somehow in our wisdom have planted churches in cities like Philadelphia and Kigali, Rwanda. Most people can't find Kigali, Rwanda on a map. And yet God has used this little church here to plant a church all that way away, to train elders and to make that happen. That's not because we've done anything. It's because God in his wisdom and goodness has worked through us to do the things that he prepared beforehand for us to simply walk in. If we boast in anything, church. Let us not boast in ourselves. Let us not boast in our accomplishments. Let us not boast in our nobility or our wealth or our power or our influence. Let us boast solely in Jesus Christ and him crucified in our place so that we can know God. So what? A simple evaluative question for us this morning. Have I trusted in the gospel alone as the power of God to save me or am I trusting in human wisdom and power? Go back to where we began. The gospel is divisive and you are in one of two camps today. You are either currently perishing and if you continue in your present state without believing in the gospel unto salvation, when you die, you will eternally perish. Or 
you are being saved because you have placed your faith and your trust like a small child in the good work of Jesus on the cross for you. And you are being saved. And when you die, you will be saved in eternity. These are the two options for us. You can't earn it yourself. You can't do it yourself. So I ask you, have you trusted in that message alone, the good news of Jesus, the message of the cross as the power of God to save you? Or is it foolishness to you and you say, I would rather make my own way according to my own wisdom and my own power? I want us to consider just briefly in closing what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. As he writes to the church, the apostle says, as you come to him, a living stone, this is Jesus, he is the him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, and he's gonna quote scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling block and a rock of offense that the, they stumble because they disobey the word and they, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter gives the same idea that Paul does. We're in one of these two camps. Jesus is the stone, that's the metaphor, and he is either the stone over which you stumble because the gospel is foolishness to you. Or he is the very cornerstone of your salvation. He is that thing that is holding your entire salvation in place. So you are either tripping over Jesus today or you are looking to Jesus and saying, without you, all of this would crumble. So I would ask the question like this, who is Jesus to you? And what is the message of the gospel to you? Jesus is either your cornerstone or he is a stone over which you will stumble. And his message is either the wisdom and power of God or foolishness. I pray, I implore you, look to Jesus as the wisdom and power of God so that you might be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that there is no boasting within us. There is no boasting within this congregation. There is nothing good about us. There, there's, there's nothing on our own that we have accomplished that we can say, look, Lord, at what we have done. That you have taken that which the world would consider foolish and wise and not, not very powerful and not very influential and like little children have revealed your wisdom to us so that we might be saved, so that we might walk in the good works that you have set out beforehand for us to walk in, that we might be obedient to you so we walk in your death and resurrection. Thank you, God, that I know so many in here have trusted in that. That is the central unifying message of this church. 
But as we know, others have gathered with us that maybe have never believed that. Would they believe it today? Would Jesus go from being a stumbling block for them to being the cornerstone of their faith, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you, if you say, you know what, that's it today. I've rejected Jesus for far too long. I want to believe the gospel and be saved. At the end of the service, I'm going to be in the lobby over by our connect desk. Would you come and talk to me? Let me share with you how you can follow Jesus with your life. You've heard what it takes to be saved today, and we just want to help you know how to follow him further. In church, what we do now is we worship the one who saved us. By worshiping, what we're doing is we're not boasting in us, but we're boasting in Christ alone and the grace that he offered to us. Would you stand with us as we sing?